Go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ruth. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry has got some. He can bring you one. Just put your hand in the air. He'd be happy to bring it to you. The book of Ruth this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 18 in chapter 1. This is, uh, this is an incredible, an incredible text, friends. I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. This is so good. Okay. 6 through 18 in Ruth chapter 1. Before we read that, I was reflecting this week, and I think one of the most amazing things about being a parent currently is like my kid's stage of life at 5, at 3, and at 1, is that legitimately every time I walk through the door, they are so overjoyed and excited to see me. It's an incredible thing. I come home, or, or if I'm leaving, if I'm taking the trash out, they need to give me a kiss and a hug before I go to the, to the trash can, which is like maybe like 25 feet from the back door. It's not far. And my kids, is, my kids want to be part of me, my, my life and my world, and they ask me questions like, Dad, how was your day? How was work? And I think to myself, wow, that, that is awesome. This is incredible. The reality, though, is that I have to be cognizant of is the fact that they're probably not going to do that for much longer. <laughs> um, they're probably going to look at me as I come through the door and say, oh, hey, Dad. And that's probably going to be the, most, the, the majority of the conversation we have outside of me maybe initiating the conversation. I was really thinking about this text this morning as I was looking at Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. I was thinking about what connects, where are the other places that this connects throughout Scripture? And immediately my mind went to Romans 12. And we actually just read it up on the screen a few minutes ago. Romans 12, in particular, verse 10. I wonder, when we look at verse 10 of the ESV, it says, Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And I, I wonder if, I wonder if, well, if we think then also about the, the NIV translation, the NIV translates this very interestingly. It says, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another in yourself. It says, be devoted to one another in love. And then the NASB says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And as I was thinking about this text in Ruth, and I was thinking about Romans chapter 12, verse 10, I wonder how many of us actually consider ourselves to be devoted to another person. I wonder how many of us actually consider ourselves to be devoted to another person. Like, like and what I mean by that is, and we'll get to this, we'll flesh this out throughout the course of this morning, but... What does it mean to be devoted to another person? Like, you're, they're good, that person's good is always on your mind. What, what does it mean to be devoted to another person? And I think that Paul is talking what it li looks like to be a Christ follower in that Romans 12 passage, in that one verse. I think what he's saying is, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? To be devoted to one another in brotherly love, or to be devoted to one another in love? What it means to be a Christ follower is to be someone who has received the grace of God and understood it and then allowed it to impact every single area of our lives. People who have received grace then show grace in return. And I think that's what he's saying when he says, be devoted to one another in love. I would do one another in showing honor. 
People who have received grace, they show grace by outdoing one another and showing honor. They show grace by honoring one another above themselves. They show grace by giving preference to one another in honor. The people who have received grace recognize that they didn't get to work for that grace. It's the very definition of grace. It's a free gift. It's given to us apart from us working for it. People who have received grace want others to experience that grace too. They want to be a vessel for that grace to be imparted to other people. People who have received grace don't hope that people get what they deserve for their irresponsibility or acting foolishly, but that the grace of God would invade their lives and deliver them from the dire consequences of their sin and then impart wisdom to that person. And grace then moves us to recognize that no matter whatever another Christian's past may be, whatever their past actions or situation might have left them in, grace moves us to recognize that we are called to devote ourselves to other followers of Jesus because we've been shown an immense measure of grace ourselves. But again, I wonder how many of us would even consider ourselves devoted to another person. And I, I'm, I'm 100% serious in this. Should we think about this? Even in our relationship with maybe our spouse or our mother on Mother's Day or our kids. The default position of us as sinful fallen creatures is self. That is our default position. And our culture is convinced that the pursuit of self is the highest good. The pursuit of self happens to be in our culture what our culture says is our highest good. But what Paul says in Romans 12 is that the grace of God removes that obstacle. It changes that. It, it makes it no longer the pursuit of self is our highest good. And in the type of environment, why would we devote ourselves to another person when the culture is telling us that? Why would we devote ourselves to another person? The answer is simple. The answer is the truth of the gospel. The truth that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, came to earth, lived a life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve for our sins. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He's ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. That truth, and in that truth, for those who believe that Jesus is the way to the Father, they have been granted grace. We now have right relationship with God restored. And therefore, therefore, rather than devoting ourselves to the pursuit of self, we can devote ourselves to others. We can exist then for others. So my goal this morning as we look at this text, we'll get to it in a moment, I promise. When we get to this text... Uh, as we look at this, these verses in Ruth, is to really challenge us what it means to be devoted to another person. What it means to be devoted to another person. You'll begin to see that kind of unpacked even as we read the text. So look in your Bibles, Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. Let me read this for us. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that's Naomi. Remember we talked about Naomi last week. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had 
heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The famine has ended. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go back, go your way. For I too am old and have a husband. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying no daughters? For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do to you, do May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So first we've got to think about what's actually happening in this text. What's going on here? What's, what's happening? Like we talked about last week, Naomi is in this stage of grief. She's grieving over the loss of her homeland. They moved to Moab and they lived there for 10 years. But she's also grieving the loss of her husband, Elimelech. But she's also grieving the loss of her two sons, Orpah and Ruth's husbands, Malon and Chilion. She's grieving massive loss that has happened, that has taken place over the course of the last several years. And her two daughters-in-law, again, Orpah and Ruth, are still around. They're hanging around with her, and they're prepared to head back to Judah when she learns that the famine has ended in Judah. So they're planning to go with Naomi. But Naomi also, this is important, Naomi also is prepared to lose them too. She is prepared to lose them too. And what I want to propose to you in a minute is that that's not in a sort of woe is me type of way, but we'll get to that in a minute. Since she has lost everything, she tells them that she has nothing to offer them any longer. And, since, and so she, she's going to head home. And she tells them to do the same. Head home. Go home to Moab. Both Orpah and Ruth refuse. You see that? In verse 10, they both refuse. And then Naomi says it again. Naomi essentially says to them, Why? Why are, you, why, are, why are you coming? It's an important question for them to ask themselves, and it fell on the ears of Orpah and Ruth differently. Naomi says to them, why? She presses them. She can't offer them anything. She cannot guarantee them anything. If they follow her back to Judah, they cannot be guaranteed anything. 
she, she, she sort of frames it in this way like, am I going to get married again? She's probably older, later in life. Am I going to get married again? Am I going to have more sons? Even if I do have sons, are you going to wait for them to be grown? Both Orpah and Ruth are probably somewhere in their 20s. And so they were like prime candidates for marriage and for child rearing. She says, she kind of gives them, she's like, what, what are you hoping to happen? Are you hoping that if you come with me, I can provide you with something, that I can guarantee you something in this life? And again, that falls on two different sets of years. One set of years, Orpah's. says, yeah, what can you offer? And she turns around and she heads back to Moab. But Ruth is not persuaded. That why for Ruth is not good enough. And so Naomi then asks, why are you still here? Orpah's left, why are you still here? We have this incredible statement by Ruth. <laughs> she says, where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. So two things we see then coming out of this text. And when we were thinking about Romans chapter 12, verse 10, and we're thinking about what it means to be devoted to one another in love, what I'm going to propose to you is that in verses 16 and 17, we see this immaculate sort of this immaculate response to Naomi and saying, I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to lodge where you lodge. Your people are going to be my people. Ruth says this. Your God is going to be my God. Ruth says this to Naomi. But the reality here, the reality here is the, that Naomi is the portrait of what it means to be devoted to someone in love before Ruth even makes this statement. Let me flesh that out for us. So two things that I want to talk about in this text. First, a call to a radical life change. A call to a radical life change. Now, when I first read this text, when I first looked at this text, verses 6 through 18, and I thought to myself, you're like, Naomi's sort of in this woe is me state, right? She's still dealing with the grief, the loss of her husband, the loss of her sons, the loss of her people. But the reality is that that's not the case. The reality is something quite different. By telling Ruth and Orpah that she has nothing for them, she is calling them to abandon what they have known as Moabite women in their land and any future that they have with their people. To, and she's calling them to serve the one true God. Naomi's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, but she's calling them to participate also in loss and dramatically alter their way of life. If these women follow her back to Judah, there are no guarantees for them. There is no guarantee of material prosperity. There is no guarantee that they'll be married again. There is no guarantee that they'll bear sons. There is no guarantee. Orpah turns back. Ruth does not. This is an important element. Ruth here, here's Naomi. And she says, there are no guarantees. Ruth counts the cost of following Naomi back into Judah. She counts the cost. And her statement in verses 16 and 17, 
I'll go where you go. I'll lodge where you lodge. Your people will be my people. Uh, Your God will be my God. I will die where you die. That statement in verses 16 and 17, they represent her acknowledging God, the God of Israel, the one true God as her God and abandoning her Moabite traditions and her gods. Now she has stepped into, she has counted the cost. She has stepped into something greater. Sinclair Ferguson writes this about this very text. He says, Naomi is doing what she has probably never never done. Indeed, could not have done in Moab. A call to this radical following, this call to count the cost here, is not something that she could have done when she was embedded in Moab. She is speaking about what may be involved in yielding to the grace of God. Nothing will be guaranteed to us except that his grace will be sufficient for all our needs, and that he will never be our debtor. There is no promise of financial security, far less material prosperity. God does not guarantee our comfort. That is why the new Naomi is inviting her daughters-in-law to count the cost of belonging to the Lord. It might well mean no husband, no guaranteed provision or security, no children, no human hope. But she's calling her, she, Naomi is calling Ruth to trust, and Orpah as well, calling them to trust in the one true and living God. Naomi presents Ruth and Orpah with the same argument. Jesus presents the same argument in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. You're familiar with the story. This is the rich young man who approaches Jesus. Matthew records this. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you, keep, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. <laughs> the rich young man, how many of us is this? He says, Which ones? <laughs> Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, again, this is us. Hey, all of these have I kept. What do I still lack? Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go. If you would be complete, if you would be whole, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is a call to radical discipleship. For us, what's getting in the way of this? What's getting in the way of this? Naomi's first words, like Jesus's, doesn't turn Orpah's back. Jesus's words to the rich young man, do these commands. He says, I've done those. Uh, Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth, turn around, there's nothing here for you. It's the prospect of losing everything that turns Orpah back. And the same is true for the rich young man. The prospect of losing everything is what turns him back. What's getting in the way? But Ruth, she counts the cost. She counts the cost. She's ready to go. God's grace to Ruth here is that she is not blinded by the things of the world like Orpah or the rich young man. She sees 
through the allures of the world. She sees through the potential comforts that the world can offer. She sees through the safety and security that staying at home in Moab would leave. And she says, I am going to serve the one true God. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I will die where you die. She's ready to go. She desires to, Ruth does, what Boaz will say in the next chapter, take refuge under the wings of God. And last week we talked about the, the knowing, about knowing the purposes of God's suffering. Did Naomi know the purposes of her loss? Did she understand the loss that she experienced and what it would yield? And the answer is partially no, because through Ruth and through the impact that she has on Ruth and this call to radical discipleship in this way, she would become, she would infuse, Ruth would be infused into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But when Ruth utters the words in in 16 and 17, Naomi had her answer. She had her answer. Why all of this loss? Why have I experienced all of this loss? And it was for Ruth to know the one true God. And so friends, this morning what I want to propose to you is that the goal of discipleship, the goal of discipleship, the goal of, of, of leading others in learning about who God is and who the one true God is, is to show people how the gospel impacts all areas of our lives. The goal of discipleship is to show people how the gospel impacts all areas of our lives. Or, in other words, like Naomi did with Ruth, the goal of discipleship is to continually count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Continually counting the cost of what it, follow, what it means to follow Jesus. Okay, so there are several of you visiting with us this morning. And if you don't know the mission of Buffalo City Church, the mission of Buffalo City Church is to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's simple, but it requires a little bit of definition. We have to talk a little bit about what that actually means. What does that actually mean? There's the official mission statement. Go to the website, whatever. You can find it. What it means to be a disciple and what it means to be a disciple maker is to be devoted to other people in love. To set self aside and to understand that we are called as God's people to be continually calling others to count the cost of following Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Friends, we have sat in the chairs, in the pews of churches for years upon years and have never asked ourselves the question what does it cost to follow Jesus? This is a problem. Devotion to others in love is discipleship. It's saying to another person, it's saying to another person, being humble enough to say to another person, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I will die where you die. And then on the flip side, it's looking at another person and saying to that person, come where I'm going. Live where I'm living. Imitate me, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Your people need to be my people. 
Your God should be my God. Die where I die. So people who are regularly part of Buffalo City Church, I'm speaking to you now. Is that something, is that a type of relationship that you have here in the context of Buffalo City Church? Can you say that's true? Can you say that you're devoted to someone in love in that way? Discipling and discipleship includes relationships. You can't do that without a relationship. You can't lock yourself in a closet and be a disciple. You can't nod at people on Sunday morning and and be a disciple maker. You can't. Um, I'm going to speak directly to seasoned people in our context. When I say seasoned, I'm being kind. I'm trying to be kind. Sorry. I don't know how better to say it. Seasoned people. People who have been around and been doing this sort of thing for a long time. Old people, sure. (laughs) Thank you. I didn't want to say it. He said it, not me. People who are advanced in age who should be highly regarded. Seasoned people. You have to engage 20 or 30-somethings. And younger. You, you have to engage 20 or 30 so You have a great responsibility to do this. I'm 32. I don't have it figured out. I don't. Don't be intimidated. Be transparent. Season people. Let them know the mistakes that you made in your life. Be humble. Say, I made these mistakes. Here's how Jesus is bigger than the mistakes that I made. Celebrate the parenting and marriage and career wins that 20 or 30-somethings have. Be honest. Be open with them. Show them grace. Point them to Jesus. In in, in 10 years, 20 or 30-somethings are going to have a whole throng of teenage kids. There's like 30 kids back there. like between like infant to... There's a bunch of them. They're, we're going to blink and they are going to be all teenagers. We need you now as someone who has raised teenagers to speak into our lives. The, the traditional way that this kind of gets played out in church is that, that the people who have se- or seasoned and have gone through it kind of sit back and spectate and they look at and they, they make judgments. There's no room to judge if you're not willing to sit down and get in the trenches with people. Invest in our marriages. 20 and 30 somethings. Invest in the marriage marriages. There are couples in here who've never go on a date or have quiet time or we got to strengthen our marriages through discipleship, biblical encouragement. Watch our kids. Don't wait for us to ask you. We're prideful. We're in our youth. We are so prideful. Season people, invest in college students and singles. Give them the perspective of 25 years of marriage. Feed them. Give them a home away from home. De- be devoted to others in love. 
That includes people that fall outside of your age demographic. Demand that we count the cost of following Jesus. What is discipling another person? Demanding that they count the cost of following Jesus. Demanding is a strong word. It's what we need. Even as you grow older, 20 or 30-somethings, even as we grow older, we need to be seeking discipleship in all areas. There is no time in our life where we arrive and where we have learned enough where this is no longer a necessary relationship. I don't know who the person is that knows the most about the Bible or can offer you the most amount of, I don't know where that person is. I'm going to go ahead and go way out on a limb in here and say it's not in this room. So what we need to do is readily be available and willing to submit ourselves to discipleship no matter if you're 8 or 80. We need to take risks here. Again, seasoned people, we've got a lot of road behind you in church life, and this may be a significant departure from what you've experienced in the past, but it's no longer to expectate the young people. It's no longer okay to spectate the young people. We've got to get in the game. We need coaches. My dad builds fishing rods. <laughs> he loves to build fishing rods. It's not his, it's not his job. He, doesn't, he does it in the evenings and on the weekends. He's got a lathe. He's got catalogs. I don't know more than that, really. <laughs> He's probably going to listen to this later. My dad can talk about fishing rods and fishing. Some of you know. Some of you know him. You've met him when he's come here. He could legitimately talk about 24 hours nonstop. You wouldn't need to stop him. He could talk about fishing and fishing rods for that long. Friends, it is a great tragedy that many of us will sit in our churches for decades upon decades, and never be able to accurately or adequately speak about the things of God. You appoint him to professional ministers. If you sit down and talk, if you sit down and talk with my dad about fishing rods, if you want to learn something about a fishing rod, my dad's not going to say, like, you know what, you should go talk to those, those factory workers who build fishing rods. No, no he's going to tell you. He's going to sit you down and he's going to school you in the ways of fishing rods. Friends, that needs to be us. If you've been sitting in the chairs or the pews of a church for 10, 15, 20 years, there is someone here who is behind you and there is someone here who is in front of you. You have to make an earnest and honest effort to engage with those people, to learn from them, and to be called into a deeper level, and to call others into a deeper level of discipleship by counting the cost regularly together. The God of the universe loves you so deeply that he offered his son for you to be brought back to himself. Now, you can be free to love, forgive, show mercy, care about others in the way that you could never think possible. Buffalo City Church, we need to grow in this immensely. I'm just going to call it out. We need to grow in this immensely. We need to be getting together men. We need to be at the front. We need to exercise humility. And we need to say, 
I need to learn from someone. And I need to teach someone. I need to be in a discipleship relationship up and down, left and right. And I'm celebrating the discipleship that's happening. And again, I'm saying, when I'm speaking about discipleship, I'm getting together on a regular basis, weekly, reading the Bible, encouraging one another in our marriages, encouraging one another in our parenting, encouraging one another in our careers, wherever we find ourselves with gospel truth, being accountable to one another and sharing in all of life together. Women, too, we need to be doing this. Unfortunately, this is a small percentage of us at this point. This needs to be happening. I could propose a program to you, but all that will do is put you in a program. We're not going to be doing it. We need to take initiative. We don't want to just check the discipleship box in the Christian life, but we want to overflow with the sense of what is God doing in my life? Let me share it with you. I'm struggling with this. Let me share it with you. I read this and it really challenged me. Let, it, let me share it. If you don't know how to do it, if you don't know how to do that, you, all you have, all you need to do is sit down with this, with another person. Pray, God, show us, change us, show us who you are, change us, make us more in the image of Jesus and read this together. You don't have to have like some immense nugget of wisdom or be able to like change the person's life in like one sit down. You just have to be willing to consistently over time engage together with this. I may be I may have only been in pastoral ministry for less than 3 years. Not a lot of road behind me in this. But I am convinced I know what it means and what it looks like to choke the life out of a church. 100%. I can say this with complete and total certainty. It's to have no one engaging in this way. No one sitting in the chairs on a Sunday morning engaging with other people, reading their Bibles regularly, praying together, encouraging one another. having no one who's devoted to others in love, specifically in discipleship relationships. Have you ever heard another person slander openly someone who they regularly get together and pray with? Have you ever heard or seen somebody judge openly another person who they get together and talk about the struggles of their lives? Friends, this responsibility is on everyone in this room. There are a million objections here that we can make. A million. I don't have time. Consider your Netflix viewing. I'll leave it at that. I'm inadequate. Get over yourself. It's not about you anyways. I just don't know how. Again, you have the spirit of Christ indwelling you and you have the word of God in front of you. If we're unwilling to devote ourselves to knowing Jesus and devoting ourselves to encouraging others to know him, we can pretty easily extrapolate the death of Buffalo City Church. And friends, it would be a mercy for us to die. For this church to die. If we're not willing to engage in this way, it, is, it would be a mercy for us to die. Friends, like Ruth, we have to count the cost 
Being a disciple means clinging to others in making disciples. Again, a simple formula here. Matthew 18, or Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, instructing them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded to you. That's Jesus' final commission, his final command to his disciples. Part of the discipleship relationship is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. What has Jesus commanded that we should do? Make disciples. It's a circular argument. Make disciples of all nations. Therefore, a disciple is someone who has heard and responded to the gospel, been baptized and been as instructed in the commands of Jesus and seeks to follow those commands, one of which is to make disciples. Disciples make disciples. If you're not making disciples, if you're not encouraging others to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, you're not a disciple yourself. Uh, disciple making in discipleship is costly. You're like, I wanted to say, have I ever lied to you? And I, I shouldn't say that. But what I'm saying to you is, I'm being open and honest with you right now. Discipleship relationships take time, they take patience, they take practice, they take consistency, they take accountability, they take transparency, they take all of those things, all of those things you have to recognize and realize are part of this. You have to, before you're a disciple and you can make disciples, you have to count the cost. You have to count the cost of all that it's going to take to follow Jesus and to lead others to count the cost as well. But if we're unwilling to acknowledge those things and count the cost, we won't be a disciple maker and we won't be disciples, plain and simple. So put in Ruth's shoes, would you have devoted yourself to Naomi? Or put in Naomi's shoes, would you have called Ruth to count the cost? Or like Orpah, would you have turned back? Look at how you desire to engage in discipleship relationships in the church. Will you be discipled by another? Will you disciple another? If you answer that question, you have your answer. Which one am I, Ruth or Orpah? So I said this at the beginning of our time, it's just in conclusion. Grace moves us to recognize that we are called to devote ourselves to other followers of Jesus because we have been shown an immense amount of grace ourselves. In Naomi's case, it was grace to communicate with Ruth the cost of following her back to Judah. There were no guarantees for her. In Ruth's case, it was an open acknowledgement of the understanding of the cost. No one needs to earn the wisdom you've accumulated through applying the gospel in your life. No one needs to earn that. God gave you that wisdom to share it with other Christ followers and those who have yet to follow him. Don't hoard it. No one needs to earn what you have been graciously given by God, therefore offer it to others with grace. When Paul writes to the Romans, I'm convinced that he had discipleship in mind. Love one another with brotherly infection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Or be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. This statement is a, is a statement with discipleship in view. How could I love a brother in Christ better than by showing him Christ? How could I honor a brother in Christ better than humbly approaching him Asking to learn from him. It's Mother's Day, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. 
How do we honor our parents? Proverbs 1, 8, and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland around your head and pendant for your neck. It is a fool who rejects parental instruction and a fool who dishonors his father and mother. In the same way, we need spiritual fathers and mothers who are dedicated to our spiritual development. When our kids get a rash, we scour the internet for the cause. When we, as people, experience loss or suffering or trial, are there those around us who are scouring God's word for a gem of encouragement? Can you, can you imagine the vibrancy of this place if we were engaged in relationships like this? Can you imagine what our worship through song would look like? If you had 20 people throughout your week say, look at what God has done for me in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine how we would love one another? Can you imagine how we'd, the town, the city of Jamestown would be transformed by a small group of people meeting in the Civic Center dungeon on Sunday mornings? Let's, let's dream about it. Let's count the cost like Ruth does. Let's not shy away from communicating the cost like Naomi does. One of the great tragedies of church is that we have not called people in to count the cost. But we've made it easy. We've made it simple. And then we have a bunch of Sunday morning only Christians. Friends, we need to get away from that. We need to be disciples. Disciples call other people to count the cost of following Jesus. And the cost is high. The cost is everything. Let's step outside of ourselves and learn from one another and devote ourselves to one another in love, specifically in the area of discipleship. Friends, do you see the need for this? Do you see the need for this? Please, I'm begging you, see the need for it. Because I have a friend who says this. If you've seen the need, you heard the call. Meaning, if you see that something needs to happen, why not you be the one who does it? Why not be the one who hears the call? Let's say to one another, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where I die, where you die, I will die. And still to others, go where I go, lodge where I lodge. Make my people your people. Make my God your God. Die where I die. Let's be those people who call each other to count the cost of following Jesus. Friends, that is true discipleship.